Futurized goes beneath the trends, tracking the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. Join me, futurist Trun Arne Unheim, PhD author, investor, and serial entrepreneur, as I discuss the societal impact of deep tech, such as AI, blockchain, IoT, nanotech, quantum, robotics, and synthetic biology, and tackle topics such as entrepreneurship, trends, or the future of work. I'm a research scholar in global systemic risk, innovation, and policy at Stanford University. On Futurized, I interview smart people with a soul, founders, authors, executives, and other thought leaders, or even the occasional celebrity. Futurized is a bi-weekly show preparing you to think about how to deal with the next decade's disruption so you can succeed and thrive no matter what happens. Futurized, conversations that matter. If you're new to the show, seek particular topics or are looking for a great way to tell your friends about the show, we've got the episode categories. Those are at futurized.org slash episodes. I am the co-author of Augmented Lean, a human-centric framework for managing frontline operation and the author of Health Tech Rebooting Society's Software, Hardware and Mindset, Future Tech, How to Capture Value from Disruptive Industry Trends, Pandemic Aftermath, How Coronavirus Changes Global Society, the Disruption Games, How to Thrive on Serial failure and of leadership from below how the internet generation redefines the workplace for an overview you can go to trondenheim.com slash books at this stage futurized is lucky enough to have several sponsors and to check them out go to futurized.org slash sponsors if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast or to get an overview of other services provided by me including how to book me for keynote speeches please go to futurized.org slash store we'll consider all brands that have the monster positive contributions to the future. Before you do anything else, make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter on futurist.org, where you can find hundreds of episodes of conversations that matter to the future. Please also leave a positive review on iTunes. Thanks so much. Let's be... Greg, welcome to Futurist. How are you? I'm good. Good. Great to be with you. Yeah, I am excited to have you here. So Greg Treverton, AB Public Affairs from Princeton, uh, Master and PhD in Public Policy from Harvard. We've done a lot of different things, uh, but the, what we are talking about here, I think, is the foresight experience you gained as part of uh, chairing the National Intelligence Council and uh, working uh, now, after that, as a professor of practice, uh, writing and thinking uh, about the implications of foresight in U.S. intelligence and, you know, basically trying to uh, predict uh, what's happening to the world and, and the value that you uh, think that has for for the government and, and for other parties. I, I have to ask you, Greg... Um, what what was this path, uh, Princeton to Harvard to to intelligence? It it sounds really logical when I read it out. Sounds like you're a very accomplished man, but uh, it must not always have felt that way when when you uh, I don't know were 18 years old. Bring bring yes, me back no, to that time. <laughs> no, it, absolutely. It, uh, it you always tell a neater story about your your path than was true. Mine had a lot of serendipity in it. Uh, I would had worked for the Ford Foundation in Latin America when I was during summers when I was in graduate school. And at that point, I was at the Kennedy School, and I thought I wanted to be a development economist, work on the economic problems of developing countries. Uh, little by little, I got convinced that uh, places I cared most about, like Brazil, didn't need me. They had good economists of their own. And maybe I should worry about problems of my country, not somebody else's. Again, this is altogether too neat. So that took me, this is 
late Cold War, not highest Cold War, but still Cold War very much on. And that took me to thinking about political military issues and in Europe. Uh, and then I, so I wrote my dissertation on U.S.-German relations, an aspect of German, U.S.-German relations, because I wanted to look at the intersection of economics and security. It was a pretty obscure right. subject, but it was a way to look at allied interactions on that kind of an issue. Uh, I was finishing my dissertation, trying to think of what next, and I got a call out of the blue from this new Senate Intelligence Committee, the first ever investigation of intelligence that was just starting in Washington. Uh, they asked me to come down and interview. I thought it was going to be very preliminary. My interlocutor was David Aaron, who later became the Deputy National Security Advisor, distinguished diplomat and good friend, uh, and whatever combination of desperation, uh, David said, we want you. Come down two days a week, come down three days a week. So I almost didn't finish my dissertation uh, because I wanted to be in Washington. Uh, but I did come down a couple days a week or three days a week and then finally did finish my dissertation and came down full time. So that was mm -hmm. really my immersion into intelligence. I thought I was going to be looking at the way intelligence analysis, which is what I've spent most of my career on, um, was used or abused or neglected around presidents because uh, I presidential decision-making was on the core of my dissertation. Uh, instead, as you can imagine, this was just after Watergate and Chile. And so I spent uh, most of my time looking at covert action, most of that on Chile, but also Laos and other covert action. So that got me interested in intelligence. And so I kind of bounced back and forth from doing intelligence to thinking about strategy to teaching. But I've spent my career really in the national security world uh, four times in the government, probably more than the law should allow, um, but also at lots of interesting places like the Council on Foreign Relations, the Institute for Strategic Studies in London, RAND. I spent a long time at RAND. Um, it's, it's been a, it's been a nice, it's been, I hope, a useful bit of public service. Uh, combining research and public service has been certainly satisfying for me. I hope it's uh, made some difference in the world, but that's always too hard a question to ask. Greg, I'm curious. So if your PhD was on decision-making uh, around the president or the president's decision-making, it's interesting that then this for you uh, gets combined with a career with overseeing foresight, because I guess a, a lot of the challenge, which I think you're criticizing in, in some of your writing now, and we'll get into the, the meat of it, is is precisely that sometimes the thinking around foresight could be excellent, but uh, it is a challenge for people in power to take into account something that might occur far, far after the current budget cycle or, you know, whatever next horizon of their work. In fact, it is kind of an intrinsic structure of our governing system that we tend to exchange our leaders, uh, you know, by popular vote uh, much faster than history, you know, or, or at least much faster than a 25 year, uh, you know, foresight study could, could, uh, you know, could enable you to plan for. Yeah. Pretty no, ironic. It is, it has been a, a consistent challenge and a consistent goal of mine on the, on the policy side, the challenge is, is, uh, helping people to pay attention, to realize that, uh, maybe thinking a little bit further than their usual time horizon. You know, if you look at the U.S. government, the average tenure of an assistant secretary is under two years. So that's about as far as you can get them to think. But by thinking out a little bit further, if you can say, if you can 
demonstrate that there is value to a little bit longer view, um, I, I think that's that's it's a constant uphill battle. On the other side, on the side of the analysts, one of my colleagues at Rand, a mathematician who is really Rand's best strategic analyst, used to say that strategic analysis, strategic analysis didn't affect what you did today. It was only entertainment. Uh, and so I've uh, tried to take that as my watchword as well and, and say, okay, I like entertainment, and but I'm going to think about long run future. It's got to affect or at least confirm me in what I'm doing today. It may say, okay, what you're doing today looks pretty good given a long-term future, or it may say, maybe not. But that, I think, is, is really the challenge on the side of the people who are trying to think about the future. Hmm. I, Greg, I want to get to uh, some of the things you're thinking about now. I know you're, you're writing on a book. I'd, I'd, I'd love to explore that. But let's, let's start a little bit further back. So uh, foresight in, in U.S. intelligence work, how, w what is the situation there? And, and give us a little bit of a historical perspective. Uh, as we said, you know, planning, long-term planning, first of all, right, it's not exactly what uh, the day-to-day -day intelligence operatives are, are doing. And, and I know there's a document, national intelligence document, uh, which covers much more short-term trends because they are obviously important for, uh, you know, for waking up a, a president and saying, you know, that these are the strategic issues that you will be handed by the people you meet and by the media. And, you know, th these are the week's events and, you know, at, you know, perhaps, you know, the, these are the year's events that you need to start preparing for, you know, when you have your, uh, weekends and reading sessions at Camp David or, or, or whatever. But um, what has Foresight done in, in U.S. Uh, public sector and, and government over the last, you know, 20, 30 years? Well, I think that the, we don't, uh, government doesn't use the word foresight much. Maybe it should more. So it's a good word, I think. In some ways, the beginning of all this, from my perspective, was really the Truman administration when they created the office and the board of national estimates. The idea there was to really... I mean, Truman understood that this was a new world and uh, the United States didn't really have concepts to underpin its role in the world. So the idea was to create a place that would do that thinking that brought in a lot of academics. They had a group at Princeton they met. Um, and so that was kind of the beginning for me. That then the Board of National Estimates then became, after a couple of iterations, the National Intelligence Council, which I had the benefit of chairing. For most of its history, the signature product of that was national intelligence estimates, which meant to self-consciously push out a little bit. How far out was probably more like two or three or four years than five years or 20 or 50, but to try and push out a bit to show how issues were connected, to look around the corners a bit. Uh, and some of those were, were pretty impressive documents. There have been thousands of them through the years. Uh, by the time I was chair, uh, we'd somewhat gone in the other direction, and, and the NIC, the National Intelligence Council, had become, with the creation of the Director of National Intelligence, had become the primary immediate intelligence support for the Washington Policy Committees, the Principals Committee and the Deputies Committee. So my challenge then was to answer the immediate questions that we got asked day in and day out, but also then back up a bit and to see if we could be a bit more strategic. But not, none of that was very... Uh, long run, you know, it tended to be the long run for national intelligence estimates was probably four or five years, not longer than that, with maybe some implications. I mean, if you're looking at weapons systems, obviously those weapon systems are going to be around for 25 or 30 years. So 
that um, necessitates thinking a little bit longer term. And if you're doing intelligence to design weapon systems, then you need to think of, think of, uh, out about that far. But it is it is hard given the political culture, given the press of day to day events, given the time horizons um, of of officials. It's it's always been in my experience uh, going against the grain and uh, trying mm-hmm. to make people spend just a little bit of time. And that does mean convincing them that spending a bit of time thinking not just about next Tuesday's problem, but where you'd like to be in a couple of years is really is really important and really difficult. So Greg, you had a hand in this uh, product that then eventually did get produced called the Global Trends, or it's called, you know, referred to as the Global Trends series of reports. And I believe they started, uh, they uh, published these every four years since 1997. Can you um, explain a little bit what that document is? As, and as you know, I'm interested in, in, in methodology. It's, it's always interesting to understand how the sausage is, is made. And I know you have, uh, you know, strong feelings about this. You were, when, when you were uh, working on it, you even held public meetings to, to explain the findings. Take us a little bit into what this document aimed to do, wh- why it got produced, why it even got renewed after the first four years. What, what is kind of the trajectory of this document? What, what was the function of it and, and, and how is it produced? I was a vice chair of the National Intelligence Council back in the Clinton administration. I, I didn't get to do uh, global trends then, but I did play some role in thinking about it. And our point really was to do exactly what we've been talking about, is to let people, give people something that would help them think out past two or three years, ideally maybe five to 20 years, uh, if they wanted to and encourage them to, and try and demonstrate in the product that it was useful to do that kind of longer term thinking. I um, was enough of a Washingtonian even in the, that, at that point to understand that if we had given our policy counterparts a long document that was secret, it's classified, that purported to look out 20 years, they would say, oh, thank you very much. I'll look forward to it and never open it. Uh, the, That's, of course, the opposite of what uh, y- your adversaries would do. If you make it secret, then everybody would read it. If you make exactly. it public, they'd be like, yeah, who cares? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, but, but happily, it couldn't be secret because if you're looking out more than a couple of years, most of that classified stuff on your computer doesn't help. So it was going to be unclassified. And I thought, make use of that. Um, try to get as much press as possible. Then if you get some press... Those policy people will say to their special assistants, what the devil is the Nick up to? And you'll get some attention. That's worked relatively well. As you hinted, I played on that when I released it in Jan- the last, the one I did in January 2017. We did a whole day of events at the museum in Washington and made it as open as possible and tried to get as much press as we possibly could. The logic has been that... And I think there's probably not as much methodology in the global trends as I would like, and not mm-hmm. as much systematic methodology. But typically, the documents start with trends and then try and play out the trends and then do some scenario building at the end by saying, ideally, well, if this trend dominates or if this trend intersects with this trend, then you get a world that looks like this. Uh, what I wanted to do in the one I oversaw was to make sure that those scenarios weren't just interesting stories, but that they were really visibly and provably sort of connected to the trends we were looking at. And I hope that was the case. We you know, ended up with four different worlds 
based on which trends predominated and which turned out to be more important. Again, we know the futurology is not predicting the future. If you get it right, you're lucky. But what it needs to do is, is be useful in helping people think about that future, frame that future in a way that is useful, ideally, for policymaking today. But there's a, uh, there's a contradiction in that too, though, right? And, and I know that you, you, you even wrote about this. You said that, you know, uh, scenarios are more useful, the more specific question they are meant to illuminate. But just to pick a little at that answer, if scenarios are too specific, then you're not trying to explore enough, right? So, I mean, there's a real balance and a trade-off between... So I'm just imagining here, but you know, you, you work in the U.S. government and you're trying to, so f- at the very least, you're, you're still assuming that there is a U.S. government. That's a, already mm-hmm. kind of an assumption, right? But, and, and as you, I think also have said, uh, and we'll get into this in a moment, these reports are clearly, uh, not really at liberty to really speak all that much about the United States. They are reports really about the external environment. So that is kind of a constraint that you, I guess, felt somewhat frustrated by. Why, why is that? Well, I think it's true. I mean, if you, it's, it, it's a problem with all of intelligence, it seems to me. And it, it was striking in the case of global trends. You know, if you think here's the United States, the most, probably the most single most important actor in the world. And if you don't talk much about it, uh, it it's uh, sort of like, uh, you know, Hamlet without the prince, um, and so it, the the NIC and intelligence have now moved haltingly toward including the United States more. We used to we used to be on intelligence maps a blank where the United States was, and now there's a place there called the United States. But but it it, it, it is very much a problem. I think if you're, I would have liked to have ended the uh, uh, the global trends 2017 with a um, a scenario exercise, in classic scenario style, having to continue, right? One would have been uh, China mired in the middle income trap to China successful out model. Then on the US, it would be United States grumpy, me first-ish, uh, disengaged to United States creative and engaged and see what those, then you get four different quadrants and you could have explored what those worlds look like. Um, I didn't do that. <laughs> Didn't have the nerve, but uh, I would have liked to. But it is, it is a it is a real problem. It, in some ways, it inflicts all of intelligence because for any issue, um, if if the United States is an important actor, then thinking about what it does is obviously going to be a big piece of the outcome. Hmm. Having said all that, though, I mean it is true that for many of these reports, and I've looked into some of them and, and asked people who were involved in, in some of them, uh, and it seems to me that. If anything, what this report consistently has done is look outside, which, you know, I guess is typically also a problem with intelligence services uh, that you don't look enough asking independent experts that don't work for government because you have so much access to government. But uh, I'm told, and you you tell me, but in, in the report that you worked on, you had focus groups, you talked to entrepreneurs in Bangalore, women in Mexico City, uh, I don't know what what other what groups you, you were in touch with, but an, an impressive array of truly external actors doing all kinds of different things. Um, so there is some value to that too. So oh, I think there's a lot of value. <laughs> you know, that's the nice thing about if you, you know, none of that classified stuff helps much. So you need to get out and talk to people that know something and the more you can do it, the better. We were trying hard to 
sort of get beneath the, you know, the political pundits and political activists and political figures. They're important too. We want to talk to them, but we want to get some, try and get some sense of what was going on in society. So we did have focus groups, lots of places. We, I suppose, by the end of the exercise had been in 35 countries and probably touched in one way or another, 2000 people, something like that. So it was a, a pretty big exercise and I think a really very, very useful one. It, in some ways, it's become a, a more a better known brand outside the United States than inside the United States. I see it lots of times when I travel, it's on people's desks. I was, I forget where, some European country and some investment banker had it on his desk prominently displayed. So I thought, well, this is success of a, of a sort. In any case, it's, it has become a, an important brand. And as I said, I think, I hope in the process, it's, it's uh, helped those people that want to think a little bit more strategically inside the government uh, do so. At least it's a good benchmark. And other countries, even one year, the Russians did their own version. So it's pushed. And the EU now does its own version, which is a little self-serving in my view, a little uh, too adulatory about the EU, but is, is also a good exercise. So uh, I know that when you did your 2017 report, you also did a study of the report that was written uh, way back when about the 2020s. So that's one sort of uh, comparison you did. Uh, and I'm also interested, obviously, you know, we have lived uh, beyond 2017 now. There were some years, uh, it, we were some years in. What are some observations on, I guess, the kind of wild cards or observations of sort of things that were a little unexpected that, uh, happened or, 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 or things that actually happened. I know, I know the, the pandemic was, was part of one report. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. so give me a sense of s some of the things that you, that struck you as, you know, the, we should have seen that, or we had absolutely no idea, or this 2005 report had absolutely no idea about where we are now. What are some of those dynamics? Yeah. The, the, the when I looked at the, um, when I, when I was chairing the NIC, uh, 2015 happened, right? So I thought, well, this is now is a good time to look at uh, what Global Trends 2015, which I guess was done in uh, the early, late 1990s, right? So it was maybe it was maybe the first of the Global Trends series. Uh, so I looked at it, and it was pretty good. Uh, what struck me was that there was a little bit too much straight-line thinking. That's always a challenge for thinking about the future. Um, mm -hmm. and because in the late 1990s, globalization looked pretty rosy, looked pretty good. Now, we were aware of the downsides. We were aware that bads would travel around the world as quickly as goods, but it still looked pretty rosy. And uh, so the 2015 was a little bit too optimistic about the globalization path. I'd faced a similar challenge. I did a book on intelligence, uh, finished it before 9-11, actually came out after 9-11. When I was finishing it before 9-11, I was aware, I thought, you know, this is a kind of too sanguine view of globalization. So I started the last chapter by asking myself, what might knock that path off? Well, mm -hmm. I came up with two possibilities. Neither was rocket science. One was a major terrorist attack on the United States. The second was a major global recession. Uh, I said neither was rocket science because a whole series of blue room panels had been saying about terrorism, it's coming, it's coming, it's going to be here. And in any 20-year period, a uh, a significant recession is a good possibility. I didn't want to be two for two, for sure. I was happy to, unhappy to have the, both of those turn out to be right predictions, but it was really my response to thinking about too much linear thinking. Uh, 
The 2004 version, I think, did, which was Global Trends 2020, did uh, predict almost exactly what the pandemic was like and its effect on global commerce. It didn't say it was going to happen in 2020, uh, but it was it was quite prescient. The, the challenge there is always if you can see the trend, uh, then the, the challenge for policymakers is saying, okay, well, when do I have to do something about this? When's it going to mm-hmm. When's it going to matter? We always, you know, the the uh, CI for a long time had had a really very active program with lots of good academics from outside participating on on fragile states uh, and was very good about indicating uh, what was that list of fragile states. The problem for policy is always, well, I want to know when one of them is going to go kaboom and I've got to do something about it. You know, I want to know when Arab Spring is going to happen and these fragile states are going to collapse. That's a much harder problem and one that we always face in this business where you can see the trends, but when they're going to eventuate into something that is uh, really important and needs to be acted on, that's, that's much harder. Well, not only is it much harder, but it also requires a different kind of process. And I guess that was my uh, one quibble w- w- with uh, what you were saying uh, earlier when we, we, we prepared for this. You know, I was, uh, I guess, asking you, to what extent is this a document and to what extent is it a process? Because in a lot of, uh, you know, futuristic work, uh, there's at least a little bit of a budget left to discuss the document as opposed to just either present it or worse, just publish it and, and you know, hope it shows up on people's desks. Tell us, well, you clearly had some ideas and you, wa- you wanted attention around it, but, but to your point, n- no matter how good or bad these scenarios are, it, it's really the path to influencing them you know, if you don't like them, you, you want to try to avoid them. How much energy was spent uh, when, when you w- worked on it to, to actually bake in anything in terms of a path to, to reduce the risk of one scenario versus another? Well, that's also a controversial issue in intelligence, right? Because intelligence is not meant to make policy or even to exactly. recommend policy. So, right. Uh, so you I, weren't even allowed to start putting that in the document. Well, I always so. think, I mean, I've, I'm, I've always been subversive of that as lots of other things about intelligence, but uh, because I always thought, you know, if you, if you lay out a scenario or a trend that's negative, it seems like it's almost incumbent on you to say, well, are there things, not, not going to recommend specific policies, but are there things that might mitigate that bad that seems to me well in well within the intelligence orbit. Mm-hmm. Some some classic intelligence analysts would say no, but it seems to me if you if you're bringing bad news, it's almost incumbent on you to say, well, here's some things that I'm not going to recommend policies, but here's some things that might uh, actually help. So I mm-hmm. we didn't do many of those in the global trends because it, it was pretty long range thinking, looking out pretty far. But in more other documents, I think it's really important to to do that. I once. Um, when I was out of government, one of the global trends came out and I'd been pretty active from outside government working with it. And my Iran colleague said, well, the intelligence can't do this, but why don't you do a sort of a policy counterpart? So I did uh, what was a pretty interesting exercise. I thought I uh, called it uh, policy making in the shadow of the future. And so I said, okay, if I take this global trends and its projections seriously, what might I do? What should I do differently now? And it was a very interesting exercise to go through. I would, I would think that it would, it would behoove the government to do that pretty systematically. Uh, I'm sorry I didn't get that done when I was, I, I left 
just after I released the uh, the election happened, I <laughs> I was on my way in 2017. But I would have liked to have done that inside the government if I'd uh, I had the chance. We uh, this shows you the the difficulty of getting senior policymakers to spend time looking out. We when I was vice chair in the 90s, we had a great idea. Joe Joe and I, the distinguished Harvard political scientist, good friend, was the chair and. We linked up with the State Department policy planning staff and said, okay, we'll do a two-page appreciation of a particular issue, uh, and then policy planning will do a two-page policy appreciation of it. We'll bring the deputies, the number twos in all of the uh, foreign affairs agencies, together for an informal lunch uh, in the White House, and we'll start Mm -hmm. by asking, well, where would we like this issue to be in 10 years? And then we'll peel back to the, to the present. Uh, everybody loved the idea. We got it on the schedule exactly once, once. Um, the, the urgent drove out, in my view, the often important. Uh, that That is the challenge. What does it take to produce a document like that every four years? I'm just thinking, uh, I guess there's two ways to think of it. Um, one might assume, you know, the U.S. government having a lot of resources compared to other governments can, you know, can put, uh, you know, as many people as they want on that work. But on the other hand, like you just said, the future isn't exactly where the priorities are for any given government. You have very many pressing issues. So, um, I mean, with, without giving like individual numbers of, of things, but w- what sort of an effort is this document? I mean, is it a few people scratching their heads and interviewing people and traveling a little bit for a few months? Or would you say that, I mean, at the very other extreme, it would be like the the moment you publish one report, you just uh, turn the page and start saying, well, you know, four years from now, we're going to have a new report. Is that pretty much the process? It's somewhere in between those two. And I think it's changed from time to time. and It's been organized in different ways. What I wanted to do was make sure that the national intelligence officers, that is, the people that are organized like the State Department. They're heavily involved in the current intelligence support. But I want them to be engaged in this, too. Most of them thought that global trends was a great idea, but didn't have much to do with them because it was looking out five to 20 years and their policy counterparts mostly weren't. So I want them to be engaged. So we had a, a, a strategic futures group, a relatively small staff, maybe it was 10 at most, uh, and so that meant that for the better part of a year, much of that, but not all of that, staff was engaged in global trends in one way or another. Um, when we traveled, I always wanted somebody from the Strategic Futures Group to be teamed with one of the national intelligence officers for that region or a deputy to get them engaged. Uh, and then we did so with that. We ended up doing a pretty long appendix on kind of a regional perspective. But um, it was it was a, a substantial effort by a small, by a pretty small staff. And my impression is the one that uh, uh, came out more recently was uh, done on even more of a shoestring. The staff had been reduced unwisely, in my view, and uh, I think it was done. It was pretty much the effort of a couple people over a year who also had other things to do. So, um, mm. it, it, but it, but it, it is challenging, though. Uh, Greg, uh, because groupthink also shows up in this kind of uh, process, I would imagine. Yeah. So it's not like 
a limitless number of people would necessarily make a better document because at the end of the day, you're talking about these scenarios and mm. somebody has to craft the narrative of a pretty limited set of factors yep. taking that into account. So at the end of the day, how, how many people could actually really actively be involved in the writing of the document? I don't know. I mean, that's probably also not a massive number. I mean, one thing is all the data they're gathering, but the, the actual writing is is a complicated elimination process I'm I'm imagining yeah no it's it's a it, in some ways it has to be you know it has to be more or less a single voice somebody's got to do it lots of other people can edit uh, I when I was doing the one we released in 2017 I think I angered my best editor by uh, giving her a list of uh, do's and don'ts most of them were familiar you know thou shalt not write in passive voice but in this document <laughs> I had some others I said we will never say we assess which is a typical intelligence product word. We're never going to say we assess. I said, if it's uh, more than 50% likely, we're going to say it will happen. If it's less, we're going to say it won't happen because I'd like us to be uh, uh, vividly wrong if we're wrong and vividly right if we're right. It seemed to be doing a provocative a document that's meant to be a provo- provo- provocation ought to have that uh, style to it. It didn't entirely heed my uh, injunctions, but at least it's a pretty crisp and clean document. And I don't believe there's a single we assess in it, which has always uh, driven me crazy. Let's talk a little bit about the future, uh, meaning the trends that you see now, the long-term developments that you uh, have been writing about, because I've been reading your uh, blogs and various op-eds, and I'm going to foreshadow some of the topics, but, and, you know, obviously you're writing a book now, and I'm assuming it includes some of those topics, but I noticed you were writing about the warming Arctic, you are concerned about an independent mind in China, uh, the chip war question or chip fabs and that, you know, it's a very complicated set of infrastructure issues. These uh, chip fabs, I'm told, cost about $16 billion right now. So these two new ones that are coming up in the US, that should be, that's going to be an interesting situation. The world depends on uh, only two other ones, I believe, right? There's one in uh, Taiwan and, and one in Korea for the most advanced chips. So these are very big strategic issues. Um, I know you've written about the geopolitical impact of a smaller America. So I have lots of questions. What, what, are, what are some things you want to share with us in terms of how you, you see the future now? Well, I guess the top two or three things on my, on my list, the top one probably would be, and this has happened when I left uh, the government having done the global trends, I said, I'm going to do my own global trends because now I can talk about the United States, right? And mm-hmm. so as I've done that uh, uh, and given events, the United States has become more and more a focus of my research it, it does seem we were we're nearing a, a really serious constitutional crisis. I think of this as uh, perhaps the end of the first American Republic, maybe the second. If you consider the Civil War the end of the first, uh, it seems to me we're approaching the end of the second American Republic, and that has huge how how that's going to happen. I don't think we know, but I try and think about it, lay out some possibilities, uh, ask what could we do about it. The second big issue on my uh, agenda is China. No surprise, it's the two most two biggest uncertainties in global politics are around the two biggest players, right? The United States and China. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm dismayed. I think that we tend to view we fall into viewing China through the lens of Cold War. Uh, I think that's a very misleading set of historical analogies. And yes, are we going to have to compete with them? Yes, are they going to do things we don't like? 
But that takes us to the issue where we have to cooperate, and that's climate. If we don't cooperate on climate, it's what take them into Arctic and other issues. If we don't cooperate with China on climate, in some sense, humankind is maybe finished, right? It's, 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 I assume it's that stark. Uh, and uh, so that's that's been a big issue on, on my mind. The third, hmm. obviously, is what difference does the war in Ukraine make? Um, and there it's a, it's, it's, I think for me, uh, it's a lapsed, I'm a lapsed many things. One of the things I'm a lapsed is a lapsed Europeanist. And the idea that there'd be this old fashioned World War II style war in the middle of Europe in 2022 was literally unimaginable to me. I, I couldn't imagine it. Indeed, I made a very bad prediction when my intelligence colleagues got right. When I saw the buildup, the Russian buildup around Ukraine, military buildup, I said to myself, why in the world would Putin invade Ukraine? I couldn't think of any reason. Therefore, I thought, well, this must be a bargaining chip for negotiations with NATO and the United States about security arrangements in Europe. My intelligence colleagues said, no, 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 no. There's way too many troops for that. There's going to be an invasion. And they got it right and I got it wrong. So then the, the big question is, what does this mean for um, geopolitics and, and the future. Uh, and there, I think maybe the answer is uh, less difference than we might have thought, though it does seem to me that it may well be the end of Russia as we have known it. And I'm not sure what comes next, but it's hard for me to believe that <clears throat> this doesn't turn out very badly for Russia in the end. Obviously, in the fighting, it's terrible for Ukraine, lots of lives being needlessly lost, and it's a horrible thing. But in the end, my guess is this is going to be a, a bad thing for Russia, at least Russia as we've known it. Hmm. Right. Uh, but I mean, as bad as that sounds, it is, if that's the case, it falls far short of the fears that many of us, I guess, had at some or have had many times during that conflict of, of even greater calamities, I guess, than w one aggressor, uh, you know, losing. Um, but, but you think it, it's gonna, it can be contained to, to that, in your opinion? Well, that is the big question. <clears throat> that is the big question. It's, you know, we all are worried about uh, some something nuclear happening. Uh, that's got to be on our radar scope. But uh, it doesn't seem especially likely now. Uh, Putin has, has talked about it as unlikely. Uh, there's no um, possible military use for it. So it would be only a terror weapon. Um that would, it seems to me, only hasten the status of Russia being a global pariah. Um, but you certainly can't rule it out. And it is a, is a, a very big worry. Hmm. If you think uh, even longer term than the, uh, just uh, this is going to be my last question, but if you think a longer term than, than the typical global trends, which, you know, looks like 20 plus years out, if you're thinking more, 30, 40, 50 years out, what else do you, uh, I mean, if you do look that far out, what else do you see on the horizon? Is, is climate and, and China still really big on your uh, end of, uh, of your worries? And presumably uh, the U.S. would have, you know, resolved or at least come to a completely different, in, in your scenario, the constitutional issues would have 
perhaps uh, played out by that time. <laughs> so then, what kind of world are we then looking at? Yeah, I think I think some of the same issues would be would be there. Certainly, climate is going to be there in fifty years, one way or another. We'll either be uh, dying off like flies or have have found a way to to solve the the climate crisis. So it'll be there. We'll worry about pandemics. Seems to me will continue to be there. Uh, the issues about China and the United States will be there and perhaps in different configurations. Uh, looking at that for us, as you're trying to do, is, is uh, wonderfully hard. Uh, what I suppose uh, would be different, it seems to me, is really uh, something about what it's like to be a human being. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think what it is to be a human being will be in question then as we get, on the one hand, a radically dramatic changes in biology, uh, biotech that let us prolong lives, improve lives, God knows who, what, what more in 50 years on the one hand. And on the other hand, we have machines that think better than us humans. Uh, what does that mean about humans and human cognition? So I think those questions will be that in 50 years, I suppose we're always asking what it's like to be a human, but I suspect in 50 years, there'll be, those will be really stunningly visible uh, questions and ones that may have produced some unhappy answers along the way. Generally though, Greg, are you um, an optimist or you're certainly not a realist? You're uh, looking beyond the realist frame here in, in many ways, but, uh, you know, what is your general outlook on the future? Is it a contingent future for you? It, you know, it certainly contains choices yeah, that we can yeah. make. You seem very optimistic. In my mind, that's an optimistic, I don't know how you would characterize your own. Yeah, I think I'm optimistic. I'm, it, you're right. It is contingent. Uh, so many things depend. And, you know, if you look at, um, it'll be a tragedy if the worst things happen to the United States, because here we have more some ways more agency, more scope, more opportunity to do things. The working title of my book is Can America Embrace Its Future? I'm not sure that'll mm-hmm. be the ultimate title, but that's the question. Uh, and we have all of the tools we need to do it, except that we have a political system that is really badly broken uh, and broken in ways that make it hard to repair, which is uh, what worries me in the short run, the medium run most, but uh, do we have the tools to embrace our future? Yes. Will we do it? That depends on those Gen Zers out there and uh, how good they are at at, uh, making use of the agency they have. Yeah. I'm going to go down and get uh, dinner on the table for some of that generation and see what my particular, uh, you know, uh, family can can contribute there. Um, it, it is an interesting question. It's definitely an interesting question, Greg. It's been a, it's been a great pleasure, and you know you're so insightful about many of these processes, and obviously have had a, a, a key and and still have a a key sort of finger on the on the pulse there when it comes to how the U.S. and and others are uh, going to walk into the future. Thank you so much. My pleasure. My pleasure. You have just listened to another episode of the Futurized Podcast with me, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist, scholar, and author. 
If you are interested in my products and services, feel free to check out futurize.org slash store where you can book a keynote speech, become a sponsor or partner, request a podcast swap, or buy a few of my books such as Augmented Lean, Health Tech, Future Tech, Pandemic Aftermath, Disruption Games, or Leadership from Below. If you're interested in any or all of my projects, check out my website trondundheim.com, which has links to other podcasts as well as my public appearances. Thank you. Please share this show with those you care about. To find us on social media is easy. We are Futurized on LinkedIn and YouTube and Futurized 2 on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time. Futurized, conversations that matter.